Hi, welcome to More Like the Reentry podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. And I'm your host, Vinkivia Garner. Thank you for joining us today. Um, so before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind all of our subscribers to share our episodes with your friends, share it with your family members, and that if you're interested in learning more about More Life, you can definitely follow us on Instagram at More Life the Reentry Podcast. We have some great information there where you can just learn more about what we're doing as an organization um, and potential guests that we, that we may be having on as well. Um, also wanted to do just a couple of announcements as well. We've recently added to our description box, which you'll see at the bottom, is if you are a person that has been impacted by the justice system or is involved in the legal system and you want to share your story on more life, you can definitely fill out the uh, application in the bottom and we will reach out to you. Um, we love to have people on here that have shared experience, um, live experience just so we can see the reality of what this looks like um it's always great to hear from my guests too that do the research but it's also just so powerful to hear from the people that are living this experience as well um and so if you're interested in doing that definitely fill out that application that will be in the description box um but we're going to jump right into today um so for today we're going to be talking about substance use um we're going to be talking about addiction we know that this is a a long-term issue um, as far as uh, when people are released from their community and they're coming back. Um, substance use is such a big issue and can really keep people from being successful. So I really think that's why it's very important for us to talk about that today. And so to do that, we have Dr. Mandy Owens. Dr. Owens is an assistant professor at the Addictions, Drug, and Alcohol Institute in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Washington. Her, her work focuses on the intersection between substance use and the criminal legal system, um, including research and implementation efforts with law enforcement, jails, and prisons. So she has definitely a lot of work and a lot of information to offer us about substance use in general and how it impacts those that are involved in the legal system. So Dr. Owens, we are so thankful to have you here today to talk about your expertise and your work. Um, and thank you. And thank you, Vancouver, for inviting me. Happy to be here. Yes, ma'am. Well, we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. Um, one of the things I always like to do at the very beginning is I always like to figure out how people got into this area. We all get here very differently. So, do you care to share with us a little bit about how you became involved in this type of research or working with people in the legal system? Yeah, I knew for a long time that I wanted to work in the area of substance use. And then in between my undergrad program and my graduate program, I started working as a substance use counselor here in Seattle, Washington. And we were one of the few publicly funded treatment centers and about 70% of our clients were court mandated to treatment. And I just really saw this common cycle that um, people would be in treatment and then they would disappear. I didn't know where they went. And then I saw that they had gotten booked into jail and then they would get out, um, go back to the same environments and neighborhoods that they were living in uh, and and then 
have a return to use and get booked again. And so just this like very ongoing cycle that I felt really struggled with how to help people. And so that's why when I went to graduate work or to graduate school, I started doing research on people who were incarcerated either just recently or um, currently incarcerated. And it's a population, I mean, that is very near and dear to my heart too. I think it's a, a group that often gets forgotten. And I just have this very distinct memory of when I was recruiting for people for my dissertation study in the Albuquerque jail, I was passing out my recruitment flyers. And I remember this man looked up to me and he said, thank you so much for being here. Most people just forget about us. And I still like get that feeling in the back of my eyes every time I think about that and think about him and I uh, just really want to move that forward with the work that I do. Yeah, I definitely agree. This is um, definitely a population that um, I would say I would agree with that is often overlooked, um, especially as it pertains to some of the concerns and the reality of their experiences um, and very similarly in my work of, um, you know, working with justice-involved people, I have found on the half of coming out of prison, some of the biggest concerns have been substance use or just trauma-related histories. And that's kind of what got me interested in it as well. It's like, this is a really critical piece. And also I have noticed even if you don't have a substance use concern and you're involved in the legal system, they still are going to make you go through the substance use treatment. Um, so I guess I would say just like, uh, in a sense, very similar foundies on my way to my journey through grad school and stuff. So I'll, I appreciate you for sharing that with us. Yeah, uh, definitely. And so I guess we can move on into our conversation. Um, so I know you have, you've done this for years. So do you care to even just talk to us about the very basics of substance use disorders um, or substance use concerns in justice involved populations? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's say, you know, they obviously overlap with a lot of folks, you know, who have substance use stores that maybe don't have legal involvement. Of course, we know there are a lot of risk factors that, you know, can often separate those groups, like people who have substance use disorders who have no legal involvement or do have legal involvement, right? Like I've worked with both groups and there's whole lots of differences about why somebody might have legal involvement versus not. I think a big one comes down to money and resources, right? I've seen folks who have similar charges and one had a very good attorney that was able to kind of help move them away from conviction and incarceration. And then obviously there's research too on how race intersects with that. Would it be helpful to talk more about clinically substance use or what would be more helpful to talk about? Um, I guess first off, just outlining uh, what type of substance use disorders do we typically see in the population? Um, are there some that are more prevalent than the others? Um, are there any major concerns right now as far as of substance use disorders that we should be paying attention to? 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, alcohol use disorder is always going to be the most common because it's the most common in our society. Yeah. Um, now, drug use disorders are, are just less common in society, but they are even more represented in the criminal legal system just because most of those drugs are illegal in nature. And so that often brings those kinds of intersections. And so if you're looking at sheer numbers, you know, alcohol is, is just more common in general. But if you look at in terms of like comparison to people who are not legal involved, then drugs is more overrepresented. Although we have really terrible data systems on how to track substance use and substance use disorders. And as a researcher, that really hurts my heart because there are no national data sets on all jails because they are broken up into counties, cities, and municipalities. And so it makes it really hard to have any really good data on exactly rates of substance use disorders. And then of course, you're gonna see different kinds of charges. So people who have alcohol use disorders and that is, you know, related to their legal involvement. That's going to be like driving under the influence or violent offenses. So having alcohol use disorder increases the likelihood that you'll have a violent offense versus if you have a drug use disorder or your involvement is related to your drug use, that's going to be like drug possession, dealing, and then maybe more like um, theft and other kind of property crimes. So I, and that's something I, I don't think I've ever been like cognizant of like the differences in charges or convictions based on um, the substance use disorder. I don't think I knew a lot about that at all. And like you said, it seems also seems to be like, because we don't have like this big national database that can look and see the rates of substance use that some people may even be overlooked or not even being diagnosed with a substance use disorder. Yeah, for sure. I mean, understandably, people mm -hmm. don't always feel very comfortable <laughs> disclosing substance use or having a substance use disorder when they get booked. Yeah. Um, and that's another layer of just like feelings of embarrassment or, you know, whatever the case may that they may be dealing with or why they wouldn't want to disclose that information to. Yes. Substance use can just be really hard to talk about with people um, in just a very sensitive topic as well. Okay. That makes a lot of sense then. Um, yeah. So do you want to start talking from like clinically substance use? We can start there. Yeah, and I uh, thank you for using like substance use disorder as the the language. Like often, you know, I have even people coming into my office and they're like, I want to know, am I an alcoholic or an addict? And, you know, and I say, well, I, I don't know what those words mean. Clinically, I can define and have a definition for substance use disorder, but there's no real definitions of addict or alcoholic. And then, you know, how people want to self-identify, I like personally let people identify however they want to identify but in terms of like making some conclusion from me to them um I go back to the the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental health disorder dsm-5 for how they mm -hmm. define substance use disorder so there are 11 criteria and it's really a biopsychosocial type of disorder. And so there are like biological components like tolerance and withdrawal. 
There are psychological components or symptoms of a substance use disorder, such as cravings or continuing to use um, in larger amounts or, or um, over longer periods of time, persistent attempts to quit or cut down. And then there are social symptoms or social consequences, such as like impacting your work or school, family, friends, and giving up kinds of activities. And so it's a, a very heterogeneous disorder, meaning people look really different when they have a substance use disorder diagnosis. They use qualifiers or we try to put it on a spectrum to say, do you have a mild substance use disorder? That's two to three symptoms. Do you have a moderate, like four to five, or do you have a severe substance use disorder, six or more out of the 11? But then when you look at the different kinds of combinations, that can look so different from person to person. And so when I'm sitting down with the person in front of me, it's really trying to figure out for them what that looks like and um, what how that might influence or inform treatment decisions. And I imagine for people that are recently incarcerated or recently released and having a substance use disorder and coming back into the community, given all the things that you just outlined, craving, psychological impact, that's another stressor that's added on to the already stressors that they're dealing with of um, having to find employment, having to find housing. Um, and if you're not able to do that because of some of the other barriers that are in place, it can be really easy to turn back to substance use. For sure. I often try to talk about both with clients or patients, but really more with these legal systems about, yes, we can ask people to go to treatment as part of their probation or sentencing requirements. And though the reality is, is that it is really hard to get into substance use treatments and to come see people like me and you, right? Like therapists and clinicians. And it is a whole lot easier to access alcohol and drugs, right? And so I, I try to make that point a lot. The other point I really try to make is how dangerous it is for people releasing from jail or prison. Because when you're incarcerated and in theory, you don't have access to alcohol or drugs anymore, your tolerance really goes down. And so when people get out, they can often return to the same level of use that they were using before they went into jail, but their tolerance is very low, meaning it is much more easy to overwhelm their system. And, and we know from the research that has been replicated that people are at huge increased rates of dying from drug overdose in the first two weeks following release from um, incarceration. You know, and I, I I recently just learned about that of like, um, I already knew that like the first two weeks was such a critical time period, but I never knew about when you think about substance use um, is also a critical time period for that because of that, like you've been incarcerated for so long, depending some people for years and then you come out and what you think that you're used to because you've done it before your body is not equipped to and that's when we're seeing those higher rates of overdose um or higher rates of death in these people and so that's something that i just recently learned about 
it's really scary. And that's what makes me really think about the critical part of reentry and how we can best not just set people up for success, but literally set people up to not die and to be more likely to survive such a a risky and dangerous and often scary transition back into the community. And we have a few tools for that. And those are not getting offered in the to the extent that we would want them. And and are those tools like providing treatment while incarcerated in whatever form that looks like? Yeah, the biggest tool that we would have are medications for opioid use disorder. So we actually saw in a study that got replicated and just recently published using data from folks in Washington state actually. So we we saw the re- replicated results that people are at increased risk of dying from drug overdose in the first two weeks. And that was from both opioids, but also methamphetamine. And there are increasing rates of methamphetamine or deaths due to methamphetamine overdose. Unfortunately, our tools for methamphetamine use disorder and overdose are lacking. Researchers are working on it. What we do have really good tools for are opioid use disorder and reducing the risk of opioid overdose. So those are medications for opioid use disorder, including methadone and buprenorphine. Those are both FDA approved and lots and decades of research on the effectiveness for them. There's a third FDA approved medication, naltrexone, long acting injectable naltrexone that is FD, um, that has some research for it. Unfortunately, the research on reducing risk of death and overdose is lacking for naltrexone. So when it comes to giving people tools to survive and stay alive during, um, especially when they have opioid use disorder and especially when they're leaving jail, really looking to methadone and buprenorphine given the research. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you said these are the things that are not being offered. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's very variable. The Bureau of Justice Statistics just released a report on how often these medications are getting offered. And again, the data are imperfect. And in fact, the data come from 2019, which at this point, you know, is is pretty outdated. And that the vast majority of jails across the country do not provide medication, do not initiate medications for opioid use disorder. And so a lot of jails are using it to help manage withdrawal symptoms for various reasons as a standard protocol in the community, but they're not starting people or keeping on keeping them on it for when they get released. And here in Washington state, we are seeing all different kinds of phases. We have some jails that have been offering these medications at all levels uh, for many years, which is really great to see, but unfortunately there are still jails that don't offer it at all. And I don't know if this has anything to do with um, the whole, is this because of like, that's a a jail, like they make the decisions about what the treatments are there. Um, Is this more of like a a bigger systemic thing that a decision has to be made overall by the state? Um, Like, yeah, who makes that decision of what's offered and what's not, if if you have any information? 
Yeah, it is mostly jail to jail and prison. I mean, our, at least in Washington State, and I think this is true in, in most other states, our prison system is operated at a state level. But similar to most states, Rhode Island is exception. Jails are more independently operated by cities, counties, and municipalities. And, and so it really comes to the, down to the jail. Like we have a state law on the books about mandated the provision of these medications, but it is unfunded and therefore not subject to follow-up. And so uh, the, there are a few big barriers to why these are not getting offered. The first is funding. So jails cannot bill Medicaid for health services. And so even though these medications have to be covered by most Medicaid plans, jails are not eligible to receive that kind of funding. So it all comes out of their internal budget. And so if it's not already getting offered, you have to really make the case for why they should put aside sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, a million dollars in order to fund the staff and medications to pay for these kinds of programs. And I'd say a close second, if not first, is stigma towards these medications. Methadone and buprenorphine, the ones that we have the best evidence for, for reducing overdose and death, they are both what we call opioid agonists. And that's part of the reason why they are so effective. But there's a lot of stigma out there that you are people are just trading one drug for another. We don't want to be bringing drugs into our jail. And so that cultural difference keeps certain leadership from providing those in their facilities. Yeah. And if, and if I may ask, what does opioid agonist mean? Yeah, uh, I'll do my best to try to explain it as a non-medical person. So methadone is what's called a full opioid agonist, meaning that the more that you take, the more that it has the full effect on the body. It is similar to other opioids like um, uh, morphine or heroin or fentanyl, such that the more that you take, the more that you kind of feel. Buprenorphine is this really kind of magical medication. It's what's called a partial opioid or, or, um, agonist, meaning that it still acts on the opioid receptors similarly, but you, you see the ceiling effect in terms of the depressant effects on the body. So whereas methadone, the more and more and more you take, the more it affects the body, including on the respiratory system and things like that. Because buprenorphine is a partial agonist, it reaches this ceiling effect that you could take more and more of it, but it hits that ceiling effect. And so that makes it an incredibly safe medication because you don't see that continued increased effect on the respiratory or the cardiac or the, the heart. And so uh, the risk for overdose on buprenorphine is almost zero um, in adults. Copy. Okay. That makes, that makes sense to me. And I'm, I'm going to summarize and you can tell me if I'm off or you can tell me if I'm, I'm <laughs> on the wave, but it sounds like these uh, alternatives are 
still acting on the opioid receptors, like you said, but just producing very different effects, effects that are a lot safer um, than if we were, if an individual was to be using opioids on the streets or from some other form. Yep, absolutely. And that's what the research suggests too, is that methadone reduces the risk of opioid overdose by 50% and buprenorphine is 40%. Okay. Which compared to every other medication that we have out there to treat substance mm -hmm. use or other mental health disorders is very good effects. Yeah, very good. Um, and there are still, but what I'm also hearing is that there's still some stigma um, also, maybe even some misunderstanding of how these substances work or how these alternatives work to where people are thinking that, well, we're just replacing um, one substance with another one. So and we don't want to do that. Well, what utility does that provide? Yeah. And what we try to explain to people is, is that with methadone and buprenorphine, they have much longer what's called half-lives, which means they stay in the body longer. And so people can be more stable on them. If somebody is taking something like heroin, then their, their, their system is going up and down throughout the day. It's mm -hmm. even worse with fentanyl where it's, that has an even shorter half-life and people are using and coming down like within an hour or two. And so they're using much more throughout the day. And so you can imagine if your system is going through this up and down roller coaster, it's gonna be hard to really function or think of anything other than trying to not get sick. Whereas methadone and buprenorphine, you see these much more stable amounts in the body. And so when you're not on this up and down physical roller coaster, it really reduces the disorder part of substance use disorder. So people still, you know, can have biological dependence to methadone and buprenorphine, but you're not seeing, you're seeing reductions in cravings, you're seeing reductions in, you know, impact at work and relationships. And I think that's what most people are really concerned about is that disorder part. All the pieces that are essential to if you're coming out, um, you know, you, you need your job, you, you need those social relationships. And if you're not able to, you know, have the necessary alternatives to support um, your substance use disorder, then these other things that are kind of just thrown up in the air and you're not going to be successful. Um, I guess also I have a question for you is um, once also, because I don't know a lot about this either. Are these uh, alternatives long-term? Like, is this something that people take for the rest of their lives or do they they take it for a time being and then until they're I guess able to not take them anymore like I, how does that work yeah great question and you know I, I might also like urge against the term of like alternatives because just in case that you know perpetuates this thought that it's like swapping one um and that really is always like a question between the person and their medical provider. We certainly see people that, you know, they want to stay on it for this amount of time and then they taper off on it. We also see a lot of people where, and I quote uh, one of my good friends, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so he's been on it for 10 years and, you know, he had a uh, shout out to Victor, uh, he had a 25 year 
history of incarceration, including in and out of the prison system in California and Washington. And he really talks about how he wished that he had been offered medications for opioid use disorder, in this case, buprenorphine, so that he could have stopped his cycle in and out a lot sooner. And so he's been on it for 10 years now and is like doing amazing, um, working at, um, with others in the community who have substance use disorder. And so I think it's like a real example of how these tools and medications can help that vicious cycle that we are all trying to help end. Right. Yeah. Right. And I was thinking about also to oh, thank you for telling me that, too, because um, I wasn't even thinking about myself, how referring to them that way. Um, but I do thank you for that. Um, I was also thinking about how some people, if they are being released uh, and, you know, they are taking these medications um, to support them, if they don't have the uh, medical doctors or um they don't have a primary care physician to go to, then that's a huge barrier as well to their reentry process of, because like you just said, there, there's going to be a lot of disruption potentially. Um, yeah. There, there could be a lot of disruption potentially just because like, this is what they were provided in their jail. Um, this is what has been helping them. And now they don't have the additional tools or that tool to help them re-enter yeah and, and we see a lot of the same challenges in the community that we see in jails that there are, are you know not a lot of prescribers offering these medications i mean with some recent regulatory changes you no longer need what's called an x waiver um prescribers no longer need what's called an x waiver in order to pre uh, prescribe buprenorphine but there certainly are barriers for folks coming out and living in the community. So methadone, for example, can only be dispensed at what's called an opioid treatment program, OTP, or a methadone clinic. And those are very heavily regulated by the federal government. And some areas, communities don't even have these methadone programs. So it's not even offered. And then trying to find somebody who can prescribe buprenorphine can also be a challenge Right. So if somebody doesn't have insurance, especially if they're in a state where, you know, they are not eligible for Medicaid, that can be a huge barrier. Making it to appointments when you're coming out of jail or prison, right? You lost your job, you lost your transportation, you don't have a phone, you don't live on a bus line, then getting to these doctor appointments is hugely problematic. And we saw that in qualitative interviews that we did with folks who are exiting jail, not just related to getting medications for opioid use disorder, but just getting any kind of treatment more broadly. Yeah, those are, those are real issues. And then I also think about like rural communities, um, like you said, it even, it even gets more complicated because there may be a program available, but it might be a, 20 30 miles from you and do you have the transportation for that um or like you said there just may not even be a, a program available for you to be a part of and so that just makes things really complicated when you are trying to re-enter but you also have this other layer of substance use concerns that you have to address as well 
yeah, we work with, you know, urban areas as well as, yeah, these rural areas. And I was just on a call this, a couple calls this week with somebody who said they prescribe buprenorphine and there's literally one other prescriber who is six months out and otherwise other clinics are not welcoming towards people mm. with substance use disorder. And so that leaves a lot of burden on these clinics to help mm. them. And they are an amazing organization, Blue Mountain Heart to Heart, and doing great work in these very strapped communities. Right. And like, um, I didn't realize, I don't know much about medication or the medical field either. So, um, but it seems like these, uh, medications, like you said, they're not there. You can't just, anybody can't just prescribe these. Like you said, um, um, I can't just, you can't just go to the pharmacy and they're going to give them to you either. Even though the pharmacy is not going to give you anything unless you have a prescription. Um, but it's just not that accessible. And like you, like you said, they have a tight control on how they give these out. Yeah, methadone more so than buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. Buprenorphine, especially with the removal of some of these regulatory requirements of like the X waiver. And there's also changes coming down the pipeline about the need for in-person um, initial assessments. Anyways, there are a lot of, yes, barriers for, for folks getting them. And then similar to with all substance use treatment, right? It is not, uh, oh, hey, I think I have a problem. Oh, I have to wait six weeks before I can address this problem. And then, you know, we all know how that mm -hmm. can be very challenging for folks. Right, yeah, because sometimes some people, they need um, immediate support. Um, of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Could you imagine if somebody had diabetes, you know, right, like, life-threatening as well and was were asked to wait you know months before they could get access to those medications and it's like no <laughs> it doesn't work like that uh well it shouldn't work like that um but yeah, yeah. So, so we've talked a little bit about barriers um but it also seemed like you've done some work where the treatment and tools have been implemented into programs uh, or into jails essentially do you care to talk to us about some of the benefits that you have seen by having these programs um, in the jails yes um, especially if we're focusing mostly on medications for opioid use disorder you know I am a psychologist behavioral health treatment and I am all for people getting therapy if they want it um, I don't think it should be a barrier to getting other medications for opioid disorder, or other medications. If people don't want therapy, there's lots of good reasons why people don't want therapy, but those are hard to provide in jails. And so when you're looking at things like medications for opioid disorder, methadone or buprenorphine in jails, we released this brochure a couple years ago that very specifically focused on the provision of these medications in jail settings. And we kind of outline it, how it is beneficial on four different sectors. Obviously, first and foremost, they can be beneficial for the person if they want them, right? Like it treats cravings, it treats withdrawal symptoms, which you know, if you talk to people who have opioid withdrawal, they describe it as flu times 100, which sounds terrible, you know, and uh, so that can be beneficial straight for them. Um, then it's also can be beneficial for jail staff, because if you have people whose health care and medical needs are met, right, 
they are going to be easier to interact with, right? Like, you know, if I'm in a medical emergency or, you know, my healthcare needs are not getting met, understandably, that might impact how I interact with people. And so it can make the job easier for corrections officers and COs. You know, like similarly, like if somebody is having physical withdrawal symptoms, vomiting, diarrhea, right, then that is something that is, can be alleviated and treated with things like buprenorphine, which makes it easier on the jail staff. And then it can be easier for jail administrators, right? So again, when people's needs are met, and that reduces risk to the jail in terms of liability. And, you know, because if they're not offering healthcare similarly to what is offered in the community, then that can kind of put a, a flashlight on them. And then it also can have benefits to the communities where people are going back into, right? Because again, like if they are more stabilized, they're more likely to be alive, right? And they're more likely to return to their communities in a way that feels better for everybody. So it seems like a win-win-win-win when it comes to medications for abuse disorder. Yeah, it definitely does. And which is why it's, uh, it, it can be so frustrating to think about, I guess, why some people don't have the buy-in. Um, but I also get like, also get funding the logistical things of it I definitely understand that um but I do also think that there's a huge layer of stigma like you mentioned earlier that plays a role into why some of these uh, medications or tools are not offered um and I mean the way you just explained it to me I, I mean like if I, I if I was over a jail I'd be sold like you know they're they're good you're good um they're complying because their needs are met. Um, things seem to be functioning well administratively. Hey, <laughs> you know, what's the harm in, you know, in doing that? Um, but I think, you know, it just depends on where you are. Jail cultures are different <laughs> for sure. And I've definitely seen jails that come out from different angles. Like I have talked to jails who they're like, we want this program. Like we want to be doing the right thing. And we are struggling to get the backing for funding this program because it does take more staff. I'll also see, say that jails are experiencing staff shortages similar to what we're seeing in other parts of the health healthcare system in terms of nursing and corrections officers. So they have the money, but they don't have the people to literally do the work. And so I really do feel for them because they are trying. Um, and then I've also seen jails that, you know, those that handle the purse strings are are just not bought into providing the medications. Yeah, I think that's a really great point too. This uh the the shortage of staff, like. I, I don't know how many at least like times from like I'm from Arkansas prisons there jails there too just like every other state but I hear people that I know that um used to work in corrections or currently work in corrections of some fashion and they're like yeah we're just so short-staffed that we couldn't we had to eliminate this type of programming, which is um, so beneficial, or they've seen a lot of benefits from and the people that are incarcerated there, but just because they don't have the staffing and then 
like you said, nursing the people to that will actually be able to provide the medications to the people to the uh, incarcerated individuals. I mean, who's going to do that? So that's also like just like a really big issue of we we need uh, we need more people in these positions so we can be able to provide uh, the very services that we're talking about. Yeah, and there's so many reasons why I imagine it's hard to staff those positions, right? Like corrections officers, they don't have like great health outcomes in those positions. They are stressed positions yeah. and the burnout. And then with yes, and same with nursing. Mm -hmm. like, bless those nurses that are working in jails. And they I applaud. Go ahead. They are the glue to the entire healthcare system. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I applaud every nurse that was an active nurse during COVID-19 because I could not imagine working um, I, I'm working in a hospital and being a nurse, but let alone trying to work in a jail or prison system and being a nurse and trying to take care of the people that are incarcerated, yourself, the staff, all of that. Like, So I'm like, I could... I don't understand, but I, in a sense, I get it. Brianna and Okanagan, Martina and Kitsap, they are literally the ones that are making these programs. I mean, mm -hmm. among many others that I could do mm -hmm. shout outs to just amazing human beings. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they're, they're putting them together, but no, I do think like, um, like I said, I don't know a whole lot about uh, opioid use disorder. Um, I do know about the opioid crisis and that it's a really big thing going on right now. And it's plaguing rural communities um, severely. Um, and I, and, you know, so just talking about the, the tools that could be used to help these individuals, especially those that are incarcerated, this just seems like something that should be implemented in a lot of different places. And we should really be relying on this because we have the evidence for it. You just talked about it. 40, 50% um, compared to not providing anything and letting people go back out into communities and restarting the cycle all over again. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, you know, we've, we've done the work to identify these tools and now it's like, we need to get, do the work to get them out there, at least available if people want them, which can also include having conversations with people because, mm -hmm. you, you know, there is still a lot of stigma among people in the community, right? Even, you know, some people have their own misconceptions about these medications. Family members can have misconceptions about it or concerns about it and so sometimes it can take some extra conversations with sitting down with people um, to hear them out the same way that we would hope to do for any health or illness concern yeah and I really feel like that's where like advocacy and outreach really becomes a in really becomes an important piece and sometimes I feel like as me as an, an emerging psychologist um, um, 
we really miss out on that in psychology. Like we have this information um, <laughs> and it's, I don't know if like we're just holding it to ourselves or something, which I don't think that's the case, um, but we're not giving it to the people who really need it. Um, the, you know, we talk about psychoeducation we talk about wanting people to know about these things, but like, where do we step in and actually go in and start doing this? Like, uh, relaying the information like okay this is what's available um this is what's out here if you could find a doctor in your area that offers these medications um given that you've presented with this concern boom like we they could help you out but like people don't know that yeah we are not good at marketing research or effective treatments. Which makes sense. We, we're, not, we're not marketing majors. <laughs> we should work with them though, because mm -hmm. we do struggle with how do you reach people, right? Like, so the legal system is unfortunately a touch point where we can have some impact. Arguably, well, the research also suggests that there's negative impacts, of course. Um, but then, you know, like primary care, we know a lot of people don't feel comfortable going to traditional healthcare settings, right? People with substance use disorders, people of color, people with low socioeconomic status. And so we, we do have a couple of projects that are ongoing looking at providing these medications, buprenorphine specifically, in what's called like low barrier community settings. So syringe service programs to try to engage people from a different point and, and you know, to, to have these conversations about medications as well as other evidence-based treatments like offering contingency management or offering low barrier emotional support. And we are still missing on how to reach certain parts of the population. Um, so that is a struggle that we are continuing to try to work on and improve. And and I think that's so important because we, we are working on it. Um, I've definitely seen, um, like you said, like harm reduction programs that are popping up around in like different communities to address substance use. Um, people offering Narcan um, or even like syringes um, just so people can practice safer substance use if that's what they want to do. Um, and, but yeah, they're like, so we are, <laughs> we're getting there. Still some people we're missing out on, um, still some spaces and communities we're probably missing out on too. But I think, you know, we could keep continuing doing the work that we're doing. We'll get there. <laughs> I mean, that's the hope. We can't, we can't give up and we certainly are not giving up. Yeah, for sure. And um, and so I that's why I was like, one thing um I really like about podcasts is they're so accessible. Um just put on your headphones. If you don't have any headphones, just play it out loud. Um somebody else besides you can um hear as well. Um and that gets the information out there to these people. Um, because you never know what who they may have uh, access to that could listen to this um you know i found this out about this um maybe it's something that you could look into i don't know a whole lot about it but here it is so 
yeah that's that's anything else that you feel like that um we could be doing to move ourselves in the directions of providing services like this for people yeah I think just some final thoughts are really being broad and think about how we can help people. I grew up and came out of what's more traditional substance use treatment, which historically has been abstinence only versus like involve. And I don't practice an abstinence only philosophy when I work with people with substance use disorders, as well as even though I now my primary clinical role is in a more traditional outpatient psychiatry clinic, just thinking even more broadly outside of treatment with a capital T. I've been hanging out with like a lot more public health people in the last couple of years who really in an amazing way maybe think more outside the box about services to offer people. You know, we don't need to offer therapy on a weekly 60 minutes following a manual 100%. People are asking for other types of emotional support and they sometimes can't reach the 60 minute weekly type therapy appointments. Some people, you know, access to Narcan literally saves lives. Access to syringes, you know, that helps. We also know that that reduces the risk of the spread of infectious diseases, which is just, you know, obvious obviously not, uh, you know, can be negative for the person, but we also know it's a huge impact on communities. And so just trying to think more and more outside the box and starting by asking people, okay, you are somebody who use drugs, either currently, recently, what do you want? Sometimes that's directly related to their substance use, emotional support, medications, treatment, therapy. Sometimes it's like, I need warm socks. Okay, well, can we get that for you? You know, I need a safe place to live because I'm currently using meth because um, I don't feel safe staying up, uh, you know, sleeping at night outside, you know? And so talking to folks and asking them, and that's what we're trying to do is we do uh, every other year, we do a syringe service program survey with people who with living experience of substance use and then we're working on trying to provide those services that they ask for which is a great thing because um a lot of the times I feel like um as researchers it can be um we really need that qualitative piece like it can be really easy to say what someone needs based off of research um and but and like we just said, everybody's reentry process, uh, substance use journey looks totally different. So their needs are also going to be totally different. So asking people, what is it that you need? What is it that you want? Um, and if it and if it is medication, okay, how can we get that for you? And like you said, if it's housing, okay, what can we do about that? How can we get that for you too? I think that's so critical, especially. Um, you know, as an emerging psychologist, um, their manualized approaches I'm not really with either because like people have other needs, bigger circumstances that stem far beyond me doing this 12 session approach with you. Because <laughs> um, those problems didn't go away. <laughs> you just got put on hold. Yeah. Totally. And people have to have other parts of their life stable, right? Like think about like Maslow's hierarchy of need. Quality of life is is at the top. Mm -hmm. 
very much and i and i think about so i think about like the populations that we're working with um they have a lot that's probably unstable in their lives um and so just trying to oh we're going to do anger management protocol for 12 sessions and it's like fabulous great because i want you to work on that but it's like if they if they don't have a home to go to or any other things there's all of these more immediate concerns uh, that need to be addressed before we can even talk about anger i i mean i know why you're angry like <laughs> it makes sense i would be angry too and yeah <laughs> yeah, I totally just think agree. those are so those are so important um because a lot of the concerns are that that we're seeing with them are much bigger than oh I'm I'm here to work on anger. <laughs> yeah, and also like community, right? That's also on the hierarchy of needs. And we see people in individual therapy, but that's not how they live. And so how can we also talk about you getting meaningful connections that are important to you? Mm -hmm. You know, which can often compete with using drugs. And we know that, man, you look at that hierarchy of needs and incarceration kind of like hits every single one of them, right? It hits, you know, it can interrupt where you are living, you know, your community, your access to employment and basic needs. It's, and then at the top, yes. Like how am I supposed to help somebody work on their anger if they, yeah, don't have food to eat and <laughs> they are, don't have, social needs yeah yeah no we're on the same page and <laughs> um so I guess before we close out here I I want to ask you Dr. Owens is there anything that you feel like the audience needs to if if they had to take anything away from what we talked about today what would you want to leave them off with ask people what they need and want and go from there rather than this top-down approach, I know what you need and want. I definitely agree. Um, ask people what they need, ask people what they want, um, and then you can facilitate how to be the best resource afterwards. Um, exactly. So I do want to thank you for coming on, sharing all of your expertise about, you know, substance use, talking specifically about opioid use disorders and um, the different tools that are available um, and the changes that they are making. Um, this is such great information. And I hope somebody in our audience share it with your friend, a family member. If you, I don't know, if you know somebody that may be having a similar struggle, share it with them. Or if somebody just needs some new information, share it with them too. Um, but we are, More Life is very thankful to have you on. And thank you like for doing this podcast and getting this information out there and your advocacy. It's, it's also leaving me with a lot of ideas about how I can improve my work and how to get that out to the people who need it. Oh, well, look, I'm glad we are inspiring people. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Well, as always, audience, I want to leave you off with, um, if you're interested in any of the work that Dr. Owens is doing, I will make sure that I link um, some work at the bottom of in the description box. I will also make sure if she has a website or any professional sites that she has, I will put those there so you can go do more in, more seeking of your own research as well. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about More Life, as always, just follow us on Instagram and More Life the Reentry Podcast and push that subscribe button at the top. Thank you.